All right, welcome. Let's uh, drop into silence for 30 seconds. I'll time that. Prepare for ourselves for success. As Dr. Joe Dispenza starts every session, he said, you beautiful geniuses. And you are beautiful geniuses, each and every one. I know that to be true. And so what I know about myself in this moment that I want to share with you and I want to invite you to join me in this knowing is that four qualities that I'm authentic. I am who I say I am and I walk my talk. I am at cause in my life, fully responsible for my experience and how I hold it. I'm committed to something bigger than myself and I am a person of integrity. My word is whole and complete. And so thank you for joining me in that knowing. Whether you're there or not, open to the possibility because you're a genius, powerful, beautiful, wise and wonderful. And so as we drop into silence today, I invite you to activate, if you haven't already, your heart space. Think of something you're grateful for and we duplicate in that gratitude, in that appreciation, we duplicate the feeling quality, the feeling tone of the infinite, of the divine at the highest level possible. For it is always giving. It doesn't keep track. It just gives unconditionally. And so I just give thanks and, and opening my heart, feeling it expand as I breathe, feeling it connect with that higher wisdom self within me, within you, and as I connect with your higher wisdom self, that divine presence that is alive right here and right now because we speak about it. We invite it. It requires invitation. Dr. Holmes said, practice the principle and court the presence. The invitation is the courting, the beloved. And so in that I know that we are fully present with ourselves, awakening in this moment to this moment, awakening and reawakening. So I give thanks as we move into this silence. I will offer a chant and a prayer as we come out of it. So let's drop into that incubator of love. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit, is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. And what I invite you to know with me, allowing my words to be your words, speaking in the first person, there's one life, one power, one infinite divine intelligence. I welcome it, I open to this experience. I reawaken in this moment. Today is a new day and a new awakening. I awake and I awake and I awake. And I understand the ever-expanding possibility by means of myself and one another that we are here by divine 
purpose, that we are called to a higher work, that we've been gifted with this beautiful, sacred, eternal, and perennial truth, this wisdom teaching that was articulated and and filtered by our founder, Dr. Ernest Holmes, but he was eclectic in his gathering of wisdom, honoring all traditions, all wisdom traditions that brought us to this awareness, to study all the great scripture and text and to live a life of the mystic, the practical mystic. And so we are part of this legacy that I honor. I give thanks for the the gifts, the opportunities, the challenges, the learning, the continued learning, for we are here to continue to reveal and to put down which no longer serves us so we make room for the greater yet to be. So I know that 2019 is a year that is spectacular for us individually and collectively as a community, as an awakened and intentional community of infinite possibility. For this I give thanks, I release these words and invite you to say with me, and so it is. There we go. So I thought what would I do is share a few things with you about 2018 that I think were, uh, were worth talking about and also where it's taken us, where, we going, where we're going forward in the year. And so if you recall, we started out the year, I know that Les does because he bought the book, he went and hunted it down, but last year I started with this book, Where Will You Be Five Years From t- Today? It's called Five, so five years it's a really wonderful book. It's, it's really about living, setting, it's, uh, looking out on the horizon saying, this is where I'd like to go. Now, how did you do that with that this year? Did you have some success with that? Anybody? I certainly did. And, it, and a lot of it showed up for me in ways I wasn't expecting. So I want to share with you uh, a few ideas this morning that I think are worth uh, talking about. One is the disease of more. Number two, our values are Why? Why do we exist as a community? Why are we here individually? What is the, what's going on? And also the, the new ways to practice. Because this will be a year of act, spiritual activism. Our theme will be spiritual activism and how do we embody and how do we move with practices that help us create something new and fresh and bless maybe perhaps what we've, we've taken for granted in many ways. So I want to share a story with you that is inspired, actually written by Mark Manson. He wrote a book called Uh, The subtle art of not giving a, and I'm going to say darn, because I don't like using profanity, because what it does for me when I use it, it constricts me, and I know that, and I'm uncomfortable with it. So I don't want to use any language that constricts me, but it's just, you know, so the the, uh, subtle art of not giving a darn. He writes this, it's called The Disease of More, and I think it's very important, because I, I, was, on, I was online yesterday, I signed up for this webinar, these, these three ladies sent out, and I got on, it was free, and you know, the, I'll talk about it later, but it was very interesting, because it was a recycling of ideas, I thought, well, we, ta- we taught that, and I think we taught that in March, and we taught that there, and we taught that, so they're just simply beautiful ladies that want to bring this, 360,000 people turned in, tuned in yesterday. I thought, holy cow, we're missing an opportunity, are we not? But anyway, we're on our way with our new website with Angela and with Steve and all the possibilities. So I am, I got to tell you that I am so enthused about the infinite possibility of what is unfolding in community. And I have this beautiful, amazing book. Steve, there's two books right in front of you there. Would you be so kind to bring them up here? I brought them out for meditation. And and then Margie did this amazing meditation that took me into a new world. Thank you, sir. And I'm going to talk about these. this This is the book five. This is what it looks like. And it's a, a neat little book. I'm going to uh, use something out of it today and, uh, to share with you. 
So let me start with the disease of more that Mark Manson writes about, because it's really, I think, crucial. At a time of the year when we set new intentions, we're, we're, we're launching things in a way that's powerful and wonderful. So it's a bit of a long story, but I'll do my best to paraphrase and to, to not read it to you literally. But he says, success is often the first step towards disaster. What's that all about? The idea of progress is often the enemy of actual progress. He said, I recently met a guy who's, despite having a massively successful business, an awesome lifestyle, and a happy relationship, and a great network of friends, told me with a straight face that he was looking to hire a coach to help him reach the next level. Don't we all want to reach the next level? When I asked him what his exclusive next level was, elusive next level was, he said that he wasn't sure. And that's why he needed a coach to point out his blind spots and show him what he, he was missing out on. Oh, I said, and then stood there awkwardly for a moment, gauging how brutally honest I was willing to be with someone I had just met. This guy was very enthusiastic, clearly ready to spend a lot of money on whatever problem someone decided to tell him he had. It sound familiar? I got to get a coach. But what if there's nothing to fix, I said. What if there's nothing to fix? What do you mean, he asked. What if there's not, no next level? What if it's just an idea you made up in your head? What if you're already there, and not only are you not recognizing it, but by constantly pursuing something more, you're preventing yourself from appreciating it and enjoying where you are now? It gets better. Don't worry. It, it, it all ties together. He bristled a bit at my question. Finally, he said, I just feel like I need to always be improving myself, no matter what. Does anybody uh, have that uh, sense of uh, constant need to improve? Yeah, and I think that's a very popular idea, especially in our movement. And that, my friend, might exactly, as Mark Manson writes, might exactly be the problem. There's a famous concept in sports known as the, the disease of more. It was originally coined by Pat Riley, a Hall of Fame coach who led six teams to NBA championships. And he won one as a player himself. Riley said the disease of more explains why teams who win championships are more often ultimately dethroned, not by others, better teams, but by forces within their own organization. Riley said in the 1980s, the Lakers didn't get back to the finals the next year because everyone became too focused on themselves. The players, like most people, want more. At first, the more was winning the championship, but once players had that championship, it's no longer enough. The more becomes in other things, more money, more TV commercials, more endorsements and accolades, more playing time, more plays called for them, more media attention, etc. As a result, what was once a cohesive group of hard-working men begins to fray. Egos are involved, Gatorade bottles are thrown, and the psychological comp uh, composition of the team changes. What was once a perfect chemistry of bodies and minds becomes a toxic, autonomized mess. Players feel entitled to ignore the small, unsexy tasks that actually win championships. Believing that they're earned the right to not do it anymore, and as a result, what was the most talented team ends up failing. So more is not always better. Psychologists didn't always study happiness. In fact, for most of the field, field's history, psychology focused not on the positive, but on what, what screwed people up, what caused mental illness and emotional breakdowns, and how people should cope with their greatest pains. It wasn't until the 1980s when a few intrepid academics started asking themselves, wait a second, my job is kind of a downer. What about what makes people happy? Let's study that instead. And there was much celebration because soon dozens of happiness books were proliferate, 
bookshelves, selling millions of copies to bored, angsty middle-class people with existential crisis. He says, but he says, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. One of the first things psychologists did to study this in the 80s and 90s, they gave people pagers back in the old, before we had cell phones. And so they would, on a, they, would, they would ask people, whenever they got a page, to stop whatever they were doing and write down what level of happiness they were at. What level of, um, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you in this moment? And number two, what has been going on in your life to cause these feelings? They collected thousands of ratings from hundreds of people from all walks of life. And what they discovered was both surprising and actually incredibly boring. Pretty much everybody wrote down seven. From one to ten, seven. All the time, no matter what, at the grocery store buying milk. Seven. Attending my son's baseball game. Seven. Talking to my boss about making a big sale to a client. Seven. Even when catastrophic stuff happened. Mom got cancer. Missed a mortgage payment on the house. Junior lost an arm in a freak bowling accident. Happiness levels would dip to two to five range for a short period and then with a certain amount of time promptly turn to seven. Can you identify with seven? This is true for extremely positive events as well. Lottery winners, dream vacations, marriages, people ratings would shoot up for a short period of time and then predictably settle back around seven. This fascinated psychologist, nobody is fully happy all the time. But similarly, nobody is fully unhappy all the time either. It seems that humans, regardless of our external circumstances, live in a constant state of mild but not fully satisfying happiness. Put another way, bless you. Things are pretty much always fine, but they could always be better. But this constant seven that we're all more or less always coming back to plays a tr little trick on us. And it's a trick that we all fall into over and over again. It's a trick that our brain tells us. You know, if I could just have a little bit more, I'd finally get to a 10. And then I'd stay there. Ah, oh, I gotta get to that 10. Most of us live our lives this way, constantly chasing the imagined 10. You think to be happier, you need to get a new job. So you get a new job, and then a few months later, you feel like you'd be happier if you had a new house. So you get a new house. And then a few months later, it's an awesome beach vacation. So you go on an awesome beach vacation. And while you're on the awesome beach vacation, you're like, if I could just get a pina colada, it'd be a 10. <laughs> and so you get a pina colada, and what do you say? I need one more pina colada. So you have another one. And before you know it, you have a third. And the next morning you wake up and you what? You're a three because you're hungover, right? But I got to get to that 10. Because you stress about your pina colada. That becomes the next stress in your life. As Mark Manson says, but that's okay because you know that soon you'll be back at that seven. I might be a three today, but I'm going back to my seven. Some psychologists call this constant chasing of pleasure the hedonistic treadmill because people who are constantly striving for a better life end up expending a lot of effort only to end up in the same place. But wait, I know what you're saying. Mark, does this mean that there's no point in doing anything? No, it means that we need to be motivated in life by something more than our own happiness. And it means that we have to be driven by something greater than ourselves. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly what we talk about with the, the Q process. Who have we come here to be? What is our purpose for being? He says, otherwise you simply run and run towards some vision of your own glory and improvement towards your perfect 10, all the while feeling as though you're in the same place. Or worse, like Riley's championship team, slowly undermining what got them there to begin with. 
So the things that got the, the, the championship players there, those little things, the practices they went to and the shooting that they did and all those things, it all gets put away because they're busy filming a TV commercial or they're busy endorsing tennis shoes, all these things. It's a trade-off. Back in the early 20s, he says, when I was what I would characterize as a self-help junkie, one of my favorite rituals every year was to sit down around New Year's and spend hours mapping out my life goals, my vision for myself, and all the amazing stuff I was going to do to get myself there. I analyzed my desires and values and ended up with a sexy and impressive-sounding list of largely arbitrary goals filled with stuff like taking bongo class or making a certain amount of money or finally nailing that ever-elusive six-pack. But I eventually learned that the funny thing about self-improvement is for the sake of self-improvement that it doesn't inherently mean anything. It's just a glorified hobby. It's something to keep you occupied and enthusiastically discuss with other people who have the same hobby. It took me a long time to accept the fact that just because something can be improved in my life doesn't mean that it needs to be improved in my life. The improvement is not the problem, it's the why that's motivating the improvement that matters. When one compulsively looks to improve oneself without any greater cause or reason driving it other than self-aggrandizement, it leads to a life of immense self-preoccupation, a light and beneficial form of narcissism where one's constant attention and focus is on oneself. And ironically, this will probably make your life worse off. Years ago, a friend of mine once told me the best decision I ever made in my life was to join a support group. Three years later, the best decision I ever made in my life was to stop attending my support group. I think the same principle is true of all forms of self-improvement. Self-improvement tools should be used like bandages, only to be opened and applied when something is hurt or seriously wrong, and with the goal always being to eventually remove them. Life is not a game of improvement, but rather a game of trade-offs. So this is what I want to bring us to, and I think it's very important to understand, because we can't do everything. We can't do it. We just can't. We can't be everything to ourselves, to other people. I think many people see life in terms of linear growth and improvement, and that's probably true when we're young. As a kid, your knowledge and your understanding of the world grow massively each year. As a young adult, your opportunities and skills grow rapidly as well. But once you hit adulthood, once you've established and have developed expertise in certain areas because you already invested so much time and mental energy into your skills and assets, life is no longer simply a question of improvement, but rather trade-off. So I use the example, it's 10 years ago I, I became a writer. But he said that I realized that I really wanted to be a DJ. But in order to become a proficient DJ, I probably had to put 500 hours into it. So to put 500 hours into becoming a, a skilled DJ was probably going to take me away from the things that I could offer, offer uh, that could be more impactful and beneficial to people, like write another book or write a blog like this one. The same is true for NBA players who won championships. In their eyes, they were just moving up in the world. Yesterday, they won the first championship. Today, they're getting more commercials, a better locker, a big brand new house. What they didn't realize is what they were trading off, their time and energy, now occupied all sorts of new luxuries with no longer able to focus on the nitty-gritty game of basketball. And as a team, they suffered. Which brings me back to the guy in search of a coach I met a couple of weeks ago. Ultimately, my advice to him was simply to be careful. Be careful with the drive to improve for the sake of improvement. The desire for more for no other reason than it's more. Be careful adopting new dreams and goals that could harm the success and happiness you've already built for yourself today. As the cliche goes, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Life is not a checklist. It's not a mountainous scale. It's not a golf game or a, better, or a beer commercial or whatever other cheesy analogy you want to insert here. 
Life is an economy where everything must be traded for something else and the value of all things rise and fall with the amount of attention and effort you put into them. In that economy, we must eventually choose what we're willing to trade based on what you value. And if you're not careful with your values, if you're willing to trade away things for the sake of another hit of dopamine, another temporary trip to your own personal psychological tent, then chances are you're going to screw things up. So I share that story with you because I think it's, so, it's such a sobering um, narrative about how we can approach things like in this book. It says, identify your values. And it's nothing wrong with identifying your values. It's important to know. Dr. Gary's going to come back and be with us. Dr. Gary Simmons is going to be with us in, in uh, March. And we're going to identify the, the, the culture's values, our, our, our community, our, our board. We're going to work with the, uh, the board at first. But our values are our why. And we have, in five years, we have 260 weeks, 1,820 days, 2,620,000 minutes. So a year ago, I talked about that. What will you do with all that time? The disease of more. So... What we have here is please have compassion for us when we show up as not enough, distrusting, grieving, blaming, powerless, fearful. These all came out of our genogram that we did together. These are the tendencies and patterns that we've realized that we've, we can slip into when we, get, when we go into fear. When we go into fear. And we all go into fear. But it's having the practices so when we understand why we're here, our purpose for being here, it gives us a roadmap of the qualities that I want to live with. Before I did the opening prayer today, I talked about four qualities that are important. They come from this beautiful book, A New Republic of the Heart, written by Terry Patton. He's a contemporary and, a, and a, uh, has worked with Ken Wilber, and it's a phenomenal book. So in my, my time off, um, when we went to Mexico, I was reading, doing a lot of reading along with Laura. Laura had a copy and I had a copy, and we would, we would talk about things back and forth. It was quite beautiful. And it's an amazing book. I'm so excited because so much about what he writes in here is what we're actually about right now as a community. It's an intentional community. And a lot of this, he said, the, the most important place, so it's a, a, a new republic of the heart and ethos for revolutionaries. So we are a community of revolutionaries. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Not in revolutionaries that we want to destroy anything. Just like the teacher Jesus came along, he didn't want to destroy Judaism. He just wanted to up-level consciousness. He wanted to improve it and bring insight to it. And so the, the, the powers that be, the traditionalists at that time, said, oh, he didn't know what he's talking about because we have all these rituals that are so important. He wasn't talking about getting rid of the rituals. He was talking about bringing a new awareness to the rituals, but they didn't, they didn't want that. And so he moved on with his teaching. But he had the capacity and the understanding because this is our why, who we've come here to be. We have come here to be empowered in integrity, transformational, generous, emotionally and spiritually mature, and unstoppable. So how do we move to that? How do we continue to nurture that? How does this become our practice? How do we have things in our lives that we can practice? You know, we did an um, amazing thing here on Christmas Day. We had a potluck. 14 people, as there's our tradition here. I've got to celebrate our tradition. 14 people showed up for the potluck. On that list of our 14 people, five of them didn't show. So we had nine people that signed up for the potluck. And 41 people showed up. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing if you were there. Irene was there, and she's nodding, but it was a beautiful thing. Uh, Jennifer was there. She brought a beautiful ice cream cake. I brought pies, and Laura did root vegetables, and Lil Lazar did a turkey and a ham, and it was awesome. 
And there are people there that, that have never been here before. They said, oh yeah, I was on meetup. I said, who knew? <laughs> but it was a beautiful thing. It was probably one of the nicest Christmases I've ever had in my life. Thank you. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? So much fun. And then we showed It's a Wonderful Life, and about 10 people stayed for that. Next year, we're going we're gonna to show a, a sexier movie. But A Wonderful Life is awesome. <laughs> it's such an awesome story about a guy that you know, looks like he's losing everything. And what would life look like without him? I wish I'd never been born. And so this angel comes down and shows him what life would be, look like if he'd never been born. And the whole town changes. The whole town changes. And this is true of each one of us. It's our story. And then when he needs help, what does the community do? They get cracked open and everybody shows up and because he lost all this money. He had let, sent Uncle Willie over to the bank to make a deposit and he lost the money because Mr. Potter ended up with it. Anyway, don't want to ruin the movie for you. But all these people are cracked open and share. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful story of, of the human heart capacity. But, but the point is, we've never done that before, and it was beautiful. All these people that had nowhere to go and, and to spend time with, and a lady brought her mom. A lady drove up from Calgary, brought her mom. Her mom's in a wheelchair at one of the nursing homes. She brought her in. It was just lovely, lovely, lovely. But it's, it's, it's really around sharing our good. You know that what I know about each one of us? 95% of the world's population would love to change places with us. Probably more than that. And they would be delighted to have what we have in our lives. More than enough. And it doesn't mean, I didn't read you this story, to not want to experience more. But it's really about the more fulfilling what we've come here to be. Who we have come here to be. In this beautiful uh, practice, I'm going to share a little bit of the, the New Republic of the Heart today. Because he beautifully articulates. Remember last year? Well, it's still this year. But... Imagine it's next year already. But in 2018, I talked about the tier one in spiral dynamics. And tier two is a way of being. So this beautiful book articulates this, this opportunity and what's unfolding here <clears throat> for us and through us. In the, the, the New Republic of the Heart, the ethos for revolutionaries, he, he identifies three major structures that all of us come from, and they are all filtered through the spiral dynamics. They're called the pre-modernist, the traditionalist, the, the modern, and the postmodern. And so I, I'm not going to go into it today because it's quite, uh, it's a very, very, you've got to put this book down about every three pages and, and, and digest it. It's a really, really rich, wonderful uh, perspective. But what's happening now, as Terry Patton says, and I agree with him, What's going on, what, what, what we're called to be, and our teaching and our, our way of life and our movement is perfect for this, is giving birth to a new species. And in that species, it's called, uh, the, moving into second tier, it's called integral. So there's things, there's articles and people teaching now integral spirituality. It's this perspective. Our task before us, our opportunity is to nurture and birth a new species from within ourselves, and a new structure is emerging. It's called integral consciousness. Integral culture must be informed by the maturity inherent in integral consciousness itself, which is built in inclusiveness and openness to each level of truth. So if our pattern is to look out in the world and judge the traditionalist, we wouldn't be here without the traditionalist. As Terry Patton writes in his book, there's some of the finest people we have are the traditionalists. And so the opportunity is, is when to hear the discourse that we perhaps don't agree with, 
but to realize, oh, that's the voice of the traditionalist. That's the voice of someone that is very much steeped in the spiral dynamics of orange or red or blue, and to under, simply observe it without judging it. Integral consciousness notices the fragmented world that postmodern, a perspective madness, he calls it, produces and intuits that a deeper, unnoticed wholeness lies underneath. Underneath all of this, all of our opinions, all of our entrenched ways of being, there is an inherent wholeness. And to see it and celebrate it and understand and to call it forth from ourselves and model it and be it. As Gandhi said, be the change we must see in the world. So we must practice. So in the, in the past, practice is commonly defined as repeated exercise, performance of an activity so as to develop greater proficiency and capacity. Would you agree? We practice so we get better at something. Practice, practice, practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Terry Patton in The New Republic of the Heart says, what I would suggest is practice is waking up again and again and choosing to show up in life in alignment with one's highest wholesome intelligence. I want to wake up in my highest wholesome intelligence. And one of the ways that I can do that is I've identified what my cue card is, who I have come here to be. Am I there yet all the time? No. But it gives me, it gives me a roadmap of who I've come here to be. See, what I know about this is that, that when, we, when we embody this opportunity, when we practice this, we teach it. Dr. Ernest Holmes said this, teach and practice, practice and teach. I'm off the slide again, darn it. That is what we have. That is all we are good for. That is all we ever ought to do. Teach and practice, practice and teach. Well, we teach by practicing. And so when the world is, looks like it's going off the rails and all these things are going on, it's to understand we've always had things going off the rails. We've always had people that are acting out of certain paradigms or entrenched in something, and they are absolutely correct in how the, the world should look. But we don't have the luxury of giving birth to this inf- integral spiritual, uh, uh, spirituality, this integral consciousness by becoming entrenched in any one thing. How do we hold it and realize, wow, this is life. This is all of humanity. This is how this works. And someone, sh- someone shows up and is pointing the finger at you because of this and this and this, you understand? That's just their unhealed, unintegrated self. But it's, it's, it's a challenge to get there at times. There's a 10% tipping point. I got all kinds of good stuff I want to share with you. I'm running out of time. So let me share this with you. Ken Wilbur has posted that at the time of the American Revolution, about 10% of the colonists were educated people who actually thought of the world in rational, modern terms like those the founding fathers imbued in our founding documents. He has also speculated that when 10% of the population grows into a new structure of meaning-making and values, a whole society is able to rewrite its public rules based on the new structure. Isn't that exciting? That's what I want to be part of. Our teaching is so, is so conducive to all of this, the greater yet to be. What is possible? A 10% tipping point is observed and theorized in several other social cultural models. When the number of committed opinion holders is below 10%, there's no visible progress in the spread of ideas. But once that number grows above 10%, the idea spreads like flame. I, I, hey, my meaning tells me that's accurate. It keeps me in the game. I'm excited. I'm excited to know that, that there's something that is wanting to be given birth. So when we talk about, you know, we're moving into a whole different uh, uh, way of being in our community. We want to create owners because this stuff is so important. 
We want to have the resources and time and energy to make a difference in our own lives and the lives of other people. It's important. You know, here's, I, God love, I, I'm so grateful over the holidays for Angela and Steve. Angela's done such a beautiful job on our website. And so we can communicate clearly. We're not just there to have a beautiful website. It's to make a difference in this world where there's so much fear. Have you noticed that? I got to shut off the YouTube stuff with all the political stuff going on because it doesn't take me anywhere I want to go. It's like, I get it. And the people that I agree with are just in one entrenched position. And there's another group over there. And I realize they, they, they all have valid positions. And to honor it, not make it bad and wrong, but understand, yeah, but there's something else we can do. There's something else we can be for together. Because if the discourse drills down, we all want the same things. And so practice is so important, a 10% tipping point. I want to just take a moment right now. So this is why we're here. This is why we come here. It requires us, let me just finish this and I'll get on with uh, what I want to, I want to honor some people that uh, are no longer with us this year because this is our last gathering of the year. But this integral evolutionary perspective is allowing us to evolve into our full human and spiritual potential. And it cannot be separated from creating the conditions that make such evolution possible. This requires a healthy life support system. It requires a healthy planet, that we all take good care of the planet. Find ways to do that. It requires us to learn new skills through committed practice, meditation, physical discipline, attitudinal choices, and a crucial emerging element of practice is to practice in community. In other words, to create a community and extend networks of practitioners with similar intentions, regardless of universal foibles, who can be mutually supportive and whose relationship with each other can grow and develop. See, I want to grow and develop. I'm a work in progress, and you are too. And I know I have a better chance of doing it in community, and you do too. If you're interested in knowing, Irene came up to me before, Irene Metallic came up before, and she's, she's just bringing a whole awareness and order to our, our um, labyrinth. So next Friday, first Friday of the month, is going to be 2018 releasing. It's open to the possibilities of 2019. If you're interested in spiritual practice, walk in the labyrinth. At the center of the labyrinth, we have the rose petals. You walk to the center to create an intention for 2019 for a blessed life. So one of the opportunities, we've got a workshop coming up that Laura and I are going to talk about and share with you many meditation practices. We're also going to do some work around the archetypes and how we access them that are alive within us. It's based on some of the work by a, a Zen master that has just been phenomenal. Another book I read on the holiday. We're going to use the Joe Dispenza stuff. We're going to use our, our wise. We're going to have a, a, a mind movie for people. If you don't have one made, that's why we're doing the mind movie. Uh, workshop. And, and the $100 that the fee is, it primarily goes to getting your own mind movie account. Very little of that goes to the center, maybe $15. But, but for you to have your own mind movie, which is what, who you've come here to be, to your music, to your images, to your affirmations. So this 10% tipping point. So it's exciting. Aren't you excited about 2019? Man, oh man, we got stuff going on here. This Q process, I'm telling you, it's so beautiful. It is just the most beautiful thing. So, I want to just honor some people that made the transition this year. Michael Nevin. I don't know if you remember Michael or not. Handsome guy. Just a good dude. He was uh, Dan Shinnan. He Dan sang at the, the first Christmas Eve Eve series. He was the one that gave Dan his first harmonica. He was a stepdad. Beautiful man. Helped us build the, helped Arnie and I and everybody when we were building the first uh, handicap ramp out there. 
Just a beautiful guy, made his transition. Dina Vatcher. Deanna Vatcher, she passed away. Um, someone made a nice contribution to our community in her memory to help support our sound system. So we have these new speakers. I said, well, we put a lot of money in new speakers this year, so let's let Deanna support us there. I skipped an A, and then Gerd Polson, Arnie's beloved. And I wish I had a picture of Gerd. I was going to call you, but it was 4 in the morning when I was putting this together. But, you know, without Gerd, this is part of our legacy. These people have passed the baton to us. And, and, and Gerd and Arnie were one of the founding members of our community when lived, met first in someone's living room and in a variety of iterations, the, the uh, Saxony Hotel, the Lions Club, and then a group of about 35 people said, let's buy this building. And people thought they were crazy. People thought they were crazy. And here we are today. So thank you, Arnie. Thank you, Gerd. But it's important to, to honor our, our heroes, those that are no longer with us and part of the legacy that they represent. If you don't decide who you've come here to be, then life and the good opinions of others will decide for you. You notice that? You need that new car to be fulfilled. You need that new home. You need that perfect relationship. You need, you need, you need. It's not about acquisition, it's about being. And then, and then the acquiring from the being of who we've come here to be is completely different. We hold it differently. We hold life as more than enough. We must trust ourselves in the hidden wholeness within ourselves and everyone else so that we may hospice what needs to be released and midwife what longs to be born. Labyrinth Walk's a perfect example of that. The, 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 anytime we do spiritual practice come together, we benefit, and we benefit one another to wake up and keep waking up, that practice. Life, this chapter is called Life is Practice. I'm gonna share more and more of this with you. Next week when you come back, we're gonna look at the four, this next month, we're gonna look at the four chapters of the Science of Mind textbook, and I'm gonna offer an, uh, an experiential thing each week that is a practice that you can take so that your life becomes practice. It's time. Ernest Holmes said this, there was a time when a man was so convinced that the world was round that he determ determined to prove it. Such an obvious statement. But what do you know that's true about yourself and are you determined to prove it? I know you are. And so it is. Blessings. Thank you.